welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show, first-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. As always, extend a greeting to you guys. Podcasts, you know, it's a revolving door, and I feel like every episode I want to welcome any new listeners and returning listeners, uh, subscribers to Counterpunch. Thank you so much for that continued support. Counterpunch can't survive without you. It's been more than 25 years that we've been publishing, and we really are driven by the support of our readership. So if you really think that Counterpunch is important, and hopefully, since you're listening to this podcast, you do, uh, please consider becoming a subscriber. You can uh, fill out the form on the website. You can do it by phone. Become a subscriber. Support Counterpunch. Keep this project going. It's a way to pay for the website, to pay for all of the other uh, you know, expenses that go into developing this content. And remember that the, the, uh, the magazine is published six times a year, but the website is every single day with dozens of new articles a week. So uh, really do appreciate that support. And um, I will also just do a quick plug for my other work that's on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Lots of other podcasts and articles and other things there. So I'm happy to have a returning guest with me, someone whose work I respect tremendously. Matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and say that I think he's one of the best journalists working today. Uh, Alex Koch is back on Counterpunch Radio. Um, Alex is an investigative journalist. He is the senior investigative reporter and editor over at Sludge, which is a new website that I highly recommend you make part of your daily diet. Uh, That's readsludge.com. Previously, he was at the International Business Times. You can follow all of his work on his personal website, alexkoch.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Alex Koch. I highly recommend it. Alex, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Yeah, thanks a lot, Eric. Happy to be here. I appreciate that uh, generous uh, introduction. Of course, absolutely, and I always want to give uh, respect to those journalists who are out there doing good work, as you are. So, Alex, we have... Boy, we have a lot to talk about. I mean, it is now September 27th. You guys are listening to this at some point, I think around September 30th or October 1st or thereafter. And, um, well, the last 72 hours, we've seen tremendous historical developments as uh, the U.S. Congress looks to be ever inching ever forward towards impeachment. We have this impeachment inquiry over Trump and Ukraine and a whole slew of questions that that raises. So I want to start there, Alex and ask you, since you focus so much on money in politics, in the context of Trump and Ukraine and what we're witnessing now, can you, can you approach this a little bit from a campaign finance crime perspective? I mean, what was Trump involved in and how was Trump's dealings with Ukraine a campaign finance violation? Yeah, I mean that, that's really the the, cent, the the potential crime, which I do think it was easily a crime. Um, that's at the center of this um, is a campaign finance violation, as well as, of course, uh, you know, delaying military aid to a to an ally, which they need apparently, uh, in exchange for potential favors from that ally. Uh, uh, yeah. So, but 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 the, the campaign finance angle is essentially, you know, a, a campaign donation can take a lot of forms. It's not just a check. You know, it can be in-kind, which is uh, services that you do not charge for, therefore they have a value, a potential value that you know uh, that you would be donating essentially, your, your time, your skills, your, your physical things, physical campaign literature, things like that. Um, it can also be you know, opposition research, which a lot of places, are, you know, obviously you can pay for, but if they give it to you without payment, then that's considered a donation of, of a service to a campaign. So essentially Trump was trying to use uh, a foreign country 
to conduct opposition research into uh, the Democratic frontrunner, Joe Biden. Uh, I guess now I'd probably call Warren the frontrunner. Uh, but, you know, the point is someone who seemed to be Trump's biggest rival by a lot of people. It sounds like certainly by Trump uh, and his, his staff. Um, so he was using the office of the presidency to uh, illegally solicit, to ask for uh, essentially an in-kind political campaign donation from a foreign government um, about something that essentially has been debunked. Uh, a lot of people, including The Intercept and a lot of kind of left publications have reported that, you know, this this conspiracy theory about Biden is completely untrue. Um, there's, say what you will about his son uh, essentially using the family name to get a huge paycheck from an oil company in, in Ukraine. I think that's, that's, that's kind of classic uh, corruption, but it's not what Trump and Rudy Giuliani are alleging, that, that he was trying to um, prevent the, a prosecutor there from investigating the company Biden was on the board of. In fact, the prosecutor was not prosecuting seriously enough, and so that's why Biden and many other countries had a coalition to oust the prosecutor and get someone who's actually going to tackle corruption honestly. Right. And so it's it's a campaign finance violation in in one sense. And it's also an incredible bungling operation, I think. Can you talk a little bit about from your perspective and, and you know, given what you know historically about other such cover ups and or crimes and then the cover ups that follow them? I mean, how do you read what what we know about this situation? I mean, is this as ridiculously haphazard as it seems? Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty crazy. Um, I mean, there are people who have been in, in politics a long time who are saying we've we've never seen anything like this. I mean, this is you know, uh, most presidents, probably perhaps every modern president, um, has well done horrific things, but also probably knows better than to to be so blatant about the corruption. Um, you know, using the office of the presidency explicitly to help his campaign, which is illegal in itself. Um, so there's multiple, you know, campaign elections violations going on. Um, but it, it is, it is just wild that not only, of course, you know, it's a blatant violation of campaign finance laws. Um, but it, it's also based on a, on a false conspiracy theory, um, that, you know, the right has done a great job of publicizing it. And, and his, per, Trump's personal lawyer, of course, is, 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 is essentially working on behalf of the government that's also, uh, illegal, I would imagine. Uh, there's no contract. There's no agreement. He's not an employee of the White House or any other uh, branch of government. Um, and so it, it really, there, there's a lot of different kind of illegal activities that kind of collided into this. Um, the transcript, of course, is is edited. There's some ellipses in there. I, I think that there's probably more that, even more damning things that weren't in there. And certainly the whistleblower knows more than is just about that call and allegedly may testify before, I think, a closed session of Congress or something like that. Um, but yeah, it, I think, it, yeah, it really is. Um, it is peak corruption, but it's, of course, it's it's pretty classic for Donald Trump. I mean, he should have been impeached uh, in the beginning of 2019 for obstruction of justice and all kinds of other crimes that he's done as president, you know, not, not even during the 2016 campaign as president. Um, but, you know, generally we have a democratic party that had led by, you know, Pelosi in Congress who have been, uh, essentially unwilling to even consider real impeachment until this Ukraine thing happened. Uh, I'm a bit surprised, honestly, that, that they're going through with it, but I think there was just so many house Democrats that were, that said, listen, we, we got to draw a line somewhere. We got to do this. And Pelosi didn't really have a choice. 
Well, that's actually where I wanted to go next because I mentioned that the Trump that Trump and his uh, you know gang of thugs around him you know certainly did this in in about the most uh, slipshod way you could imagine. <laughs> but uh, you know, so so the bumbling certainly uh, bumbling and bungling, I guess, uh, is is coming from the Trump side. But I really feel that this has already been bungled badly by the Democrats. Uh, it seems like they are you know, very reluctantly pushing forward and trying to limit the scope of this to such a degree that it seems almost inevitable that this is going to be a win for Trump. Um, Can you just give me your take on how the Democrats are moving forward here? Do you think they're making a huge mistake in limiting the scope of this investigation or of this inquiry? And where is this really going to go? Yeah, I mean, I... uh characteristically the democratic leadership is bungling it um uh, it could be worse they could just be refusing to impeach uh, i think that's worse i don't think necessarily this is going to be a win for trump i actually think it's going to be bad for him regardless um you know i don't think it matters if the senate votes to actually remove him from office or not we all know how that's going to go i mean you have to be as cynical as possible with the with the with the gop senators Including Mitt Romney and the people who pretend to be concerned, the Susan Collinses, and, um, you know that that's just a joke. I mean, they're not gonna they're not gonna boot him from office. But that's not the point. I mean, the point is to have these hearings, televised hearings on C-SPAN, tons of news coverage, uh, explaining to the American people why he really did break a lot of laws and why he shouldn't be president and why he definitely shouldn't be reelected president. Uh, so, you know, if you're gonna limit the scope of of this, essentially a public trial. You're shooting yourself in the foot. You're saying, "Oh well, all the stuff that we were, you know, we were, we've been frustrated with to, for three years, including obstruction of justice uh, in 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 the Russia investigation and other matters. You know, if we're not going to talk about that, we're just saying, oh, well, actually, that wasn't really like that important. Like this is the real important thing. No, it, it's all important. It's a pattern. It's it's a it's a lifetime of corruption that Donald Trump has taken as as has led. Right, his whole family, his dad, uh, you know, from. Uh, just racially discriminating in their apartment buildings in, in you know, the mid-20th century up till now. I mean, it's, it's just all Donald Trump knows, and he never should have been president. Uh, he, and he didn't even win the popular vote, uh, but we have this terrible electoral college system. Um, but, you know, it, it, it just seems nuts to me to, to be limiting the, essentially the dirt that you're going to be unairing, like you're going to be airing to the public, something that, you know, Robert Mueller was unwilling to really talk about, and uh, something that the DNI just yesterday uh, was unwilling to talk about. You know, these, 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 whatever, the, wherever their political leanings are. I mean, the, these, these kind of lifelong bureaucrats like like Mueller and like the DNI. I mean, they're they're completely useless. They're not going to ever say anything helpful. So what you need to do is you need to get actual lawyers, bring them into Congress, cross-examine every person, subpoena everyone involved, all these White House lawyers and everyone else who's involved. And you're going to get some good stuff out of that, and you're just going to make Trump seem even more corrupt, which is which is important. Yeah, I mean, I think so too, and I want it, uh, you know, for the historical record and so forth. But I also do think that um, this is precisely the kind of uh, you know setup for victimization that Trump is looking for going into 2020. This is also precisely the kind of thing that allows him to relitigate 2016, as we now see Hillary Clinton booked on every Sunday morning talk show. She's going on, I don't know, The View or wherever else the hell she's going to go emerging from her, you know, wormhole that she's been living in or wherever she's been. And now we're going to relitigate 2016 yet again uh, in, in you know, in anticipation of election 2020. This is not to say that I don't want to see impeachment or that I want to see the fascists brought down as quickly as possible. Of course I do. 
But what is this really leading us to considering, as you said, and I agree, the Democrats don't know how to actually do this? Yeah, I mean, the, the one the one thing that I, I, I don't think it's really about 2016. I mean, yeah, maybe Hillary's going to, you know, go on some talk shows. I think she'll kind of disappear again. Um, luckily, Bill Clinton is shutting his mouth, as far as I know, which is a very good thing. Um, he's kind of a wrecking ball. Uh but but I do think it's it's more about 2020. I mean, clearly the crime is is about the 2020 election. It's about it's about hobbling Joe Biden, um, and frankly, it's a very good thing it's happening now, not in the general. Because if he did win, uh, this would be uh, it would be bad for both of them, but it'd be bad for Biden too. I, I think that if it's happening in the primary, then the Democratic primary voters can take this under consideration when they decide who to vote for and say, oh well, maybe. Maybe the you know a, a very old uh, political dynasty character like Joe Biden, who has a lot of skeletons in the closet, whose whose son is corrupt, and he allowed him to be corrupt, even though it wasn't in the way that you know Trump and Giuliani pretend it is. Um, he apparently Joe Biden's brother was using the family some family foundation for political leverage or for business leverage the other day. You know, I mean, it's 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 just a liability. So I, I, I'm glad that you know if, if this is going to happen, it's good as happening now. Like in the middle of the primary season. Um, in terms of, yeah, I mean, um, I don't trust the Democratic leadership to do this the right way. Um, but, you know, also in a way, I think it's kind of hard to screw it up too bad, just given how blatant the corruption is. You have you have a lot, like, I mean, there's plenty of political pundits and, and law professors and stuff who are out there being very open about how Trump and, you know, William Barr, the attorney general, I mean, they are just deeply, deeply in violation of all kinds of laws and codes, and they should they should resign or be impeached. You know, so um, I, I do think uh, it's it's a positive for the Democrats. Um, but a- again, they could. I mean, it, you're right. I mean, it could it could happen that somehow this turns out if it's very limited, it could end up being you know Trump kind of appears to be exonerated and he gets to play the victim again. Um, but I don't think that's going to help him in the polls. I, I think that it can only hurt him, right? And I think it will hurt him. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how, how badly they screw it up. That's always kind of the question. Exactly right. All right, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about some of the investigations into Facebook and Facebook advertising and who exactly is doing that advertising. And then from there, I want to talk about uh, an important death that happened about uh, in the last couple of months and how that relates to U.S. politics and the right wing in general. So stick with us on the other side of the break. I'll continue the conversation with Alex Koch. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
Punch Radio. I'm chatting with Alex Koch. The website readsludge.com. Sludge is an important news site for you all to make part of your normal daily rotation. So, um, Alex, uh, before the break, we talked about Trump and Ukraine and uh, impeachment and all of the rest of that. And, you know, everybody's going to get a diet of that from, you know, all of the different outlets that they follow regularly. So let's talk about something else, something that probably isn't getting as much attention. Your recent investigation into Facebook ad revenue and specifically uh, ad revenue generated by hate groups and by the far right. You recently had a piece uh, on Facebook ad revenue entitled Facebook is making millions by promoting hate groups content. Um, So Alex, let's just start with a general overview here. You looked into some of this ad revenue, and what specifically did you find? So to their credit, actually, Facebook has a downloadable database of political and social advertisements that have been made on their platform. Um, So I think their definition of of political ads is fairly broad. This includes uh, what are commonly known as issue ads or sort of Ads about social issues that you know are, are kind of uh, tangentially related to some political issue. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a pretty large database. Uh, I downloaded it the other week and started analyzing it uh, using the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of hate groups. There's about a thousand groups or so, um, and so I was I was you know going through this large database from Facebook and looking at the ad revenue coming from any of these groups just to see is are they accepting money from you know anti-Muslim groups, anti-immigrant groups, anti-LGBTQ groups. And I found 38 groups that have done advertising since the middle of 2018, which is when Facebook started their database. So it's really fairly recent stuff, um, you know, the last 13, 14 months or so. Um, yeah, 38 groups for a total of around 1.6 million, maybe a bit more. Um, giving money straight to Facebook. And, and this is a company that, of course, has, has uh, been highly criticized for years for allowing uh, hate and misinformation to spread on its platform. I mean, Facebook is, is partially responsible for uh, genocides in Myanmar, for anti-Muslim violence uh, in Sri Lanka, and in some other countries too. So uh, it, it, they're really doing a terrible job of, of monitoring the content for accuracy and for uh, targeted hate. Uh, harassment of, of various different groups. Um, and so a lot of this stuff gets just spread widely, especially in developing countries that don't have as large kind of media networks that, that we do. Um, the media often gets replaced by Facebook and, and has some really horrible, horrible results. Um, but getting back to my report, um, I looked at, these are American hate groups because um, the Southern Poverty Law Center um, generally sticks to American groups. Um, uh, and so, you know, a lot of these groups are anti-spender, uh, was FAIR, or the Federation for uh, American Immigration um, Reform. They spent uh, almost a million dollars, about $960,000 on ads um, on Facebook. Uh, and then a couple of really major anti-LGBTQ groups, uh, like the Family Research Council um, and the Alliance Defending Freedom, spent a total of about 540 
$1,000. And just to give you a sense of, of some of these groups and how radical they are, uh, there's one group I, I write about in the report um, that actually um, supports uh, executing people who have LGBTQ sex, quote unquote. So um, th this group actually wants to kill gay people and um, they are allowed to advertise on Facebook. And the, the real root of the problem is that Facebook treats, uh, it's monitoring, Facebook monitors hate differently whether it's a, a post or it's an actual group. So with the posts, they have a stricter monitoring code uh, that, of course, is kind of seemingly randomly applied to posts. But uh, they do take down some posts that are you know, calling for violence against groups that are extremely discriminatory against classes of people. Um, but if the group itself that has posted certain posts or that as its even ideology is extremely discriminatory – and considered a hate group by outside experts like the SPLC, they still allow that group to have a profile on Facebook because they just go by the post, not by the group, unless the group is explicitly violent. Um, so they took down the Proud Boys pages because the Proud Boys is, is an explicitly violent kind of fascist street gang, essentially, um, with a lot of different uh, prejudices. Um, but they left up this group called the American Vision, um, and they, they leave up a lot of other groups um, some of which don't actually call for the execution of certain classes of people, but are uh, extremely dangerous hate groups that have been written about extensively. So essentially, um, by leaving these groups on the platform, and in some cases allowing them to actually pay to boost their content, um, they're letting these groups um, use you know offensive but perhaps language that doesn't quite break Facebook's policies. Uh, to have a presence to advertise again and, and to recruit. And so they're, they're bringing these people off of Facebook and onto more extreme platforms where they're going to be proselytized and could get easily radicalized. One thing that struck me in reading your report, and I think that this is probably a, a fairly predictable criticism, is that what you identified is over the course of about a year and a half, $1.6 million in revenue, which for Facebook is a drop in the bucket, if that, right? So uh, so an immediate, an immediate thought, I think, from somebody who would have a contrarian point of view here is, well, $1.6 million is nothing. That has no impact on Facebook, and they probably don't even notice it. But to me, my immediate thought was, well, Facebook is voluntarily publishing this information. How much more is there that we don't even know about? So that's really what I'd like to get your perspective on. I mean, is what you identified really just the tip of the iceberg? Because it really seems like it would be. I, I think I think certainly could be. Um, but it's, it's also a question of um, actual ad dollars and then impact, right? So you know, if only, yeah, 1.6 million is, is nothing for Facebook. So first of all, that would just pose a question, why don't you just get rid of these groups? You're not making any meaningful amount of money from them. Just get rid of them, you know. But um, they're, they're keeping them up, and I think it's, it's a larger question of um, they want to avoid being attacked by conservatives, including members of Congress who have been going after Facebook and Google and Twitter for what they claim is, is an anti-conservative bias, but it's it's just... I mean, look, like, conservative groups are a lot more involved with hate than, than liberal groups. That's just how it is. Um, you know, leftists are, are communists and, and, you know, right wingers are white nationalists. So it's, you know, the, the, it's not you can't really just there's not a both sides issue here. But that's how, you know, the conservatives want it to be. And that's how Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, um, in the interest of just boosting as their profits as much as they can, 
they're they're pretending that these are equivalent things, and so they're both sizing this and saying, well, we need to listen to you know the fascist groups. So they should have a platform too, uh, and you know because they don't want to be called into Congress and have to defend censorship. Um, when really what they do is the is the bare minimum that you could possibly do to protect people on the platform. I don't even know if so, it qualifies them at all. So it sounds like so it sounds like the real issue then would be that uh, that fascist propaganda has become mainstream on the right wing in the U.S. politics. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I use the term fascist fairly loosely. I mean, I think there's a lot of you know more uh, specific ways to refer to it, including the ways that. SPLC delineates its uh, hate groups. Um, you know, the, some of the groups I mentioned. There's also some white nationalist groups. Um, there's general hate groups. There, there's all these things. Um, but yes, I mean, I think a lot of these, uh, a lot, especially the the modern Republican Party, um, and, and perhaps just more overtly than before. Uh, I think there's been a lot of hate uh, on the right for a long time, but um, certainly these are becoming more mainstream, rhetorically mainstream ideas. You know. Uh, that illegal immigrants are Ill- all illegal immigrants, immigrants are criminals. For example, that was a that was a sponsored ad on by a hate group on Facebook. Literally, it was a, it was some anime character with a sign saying 100% of illegal aliens are criminals. You know, I mean that that I don't think would have even during even George Bush's presidency. I'm not sure that would have been a common thing to hear. But you know, Donald Trump began his camp his first campaign speech in 2015 said that Mexicans are rapists and criminals, and uh, he won. So, like, clearly, you know, his his brand of, of conservatism, the more overt, in-your-face, hi, I'm a racist uh, and a bigot conservatism, is really kind of the mainstream Republican Party now. Uh, and, and so, of course, because our, 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 <laughs> our both, the both-sides-ism of the mainstream media and of these social media platforms, you know, they're saying, oh, well, that's a legitimate position, too. Um, that's not, you know... So, so that's why a lot of these ads stay up, and these groups that promote these kind of things stay up. Um, but because you, you have members of Congress, and you got the president saying the same thing. Uh, but this, so what's really important about this is is what uh, one of the, their interim research director at SPLC told me, and is that the three areas that I identified as the most, the biggest advertisers uh, that are allowed on Facebook, which is anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, and anti-LGBTQ, are the three. Uh, areas that Facebook has always typically been kind of weak on enforcing. And that's because those are policies that are pretty mainstream in conservative thinking and opinion right now. Uh, obviously, the right in America is extremely anti-Muslim, uh, as, and, and a lot of the politicians uh, in Congress and stuff are some of the worst anti-Muslims out there. Um, they're obviously anti-LGBTQ, um, and they're obviously anti-immigrant, um, given what's been going on with, with the, the conservative immigration policy. Uh, and of course, anti-immigrant groups are almost inevitably going to be anti-Muslim too. So there's a lot of overlap. But um, you know, so what, what he was telling me is essentially, you know, when Facebook Facebook will monitor its content when it's politically expedient, and what that means is when it's not politically expedient, they won't do it. So because the right is so consumed with anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, and anti-gay. Uh, thinking and policies and, and promotion that Facebook's going to go easy because they, again they don't want to be pulled before Congress and have to defend it. Well, that makes perfect sense, and that mainstreaming of of far right wing ideology having become so dominant within just the mainstream discourse of conservative politics in the U.S. There's a long trajectory that gets us to that point over a number of decades. Really, the 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 modern story of American politics, and that story really can't be written without some of the key figures. And one of those key figures in mainstreaming this type of politics that you're describing recently passed away, and I'm talking. About 
about David Koch. Uh, you've written quite a lot over the years about the Koch Industries, the dark money, the networks that they're behind, that their money has bankrolled. And I know you've written quite a bit uh, since his passing. So I wanted to just kind of using our contemporary uh, politics as a prism for looking at uh, David Koch and, and his legacy and what their money has done. Can you talk a little bit about what his passing means in the context of 2019-2020? Well, you know, he's a he has been a very important figure in right-wing politics, of course, along with his brother Charles, who really has kind of been at the helm of their political operation. But but David Koch, um, you know, has been part of it, for certainly, and part of the philanthropic network of conservative billionaire donors who have corrupted our political system. Um, his death actually doesn't really have an effect on much. One, because his brother is still alive. His older brother, Charles, is still alive, still very sound of mind, not sick, and uh, still working full-time at about 81 or 82 years old, um, and is still helming these right-wing networks and, and it, continuing to uh, poison uh, the education, educational and political systems in America. Um, but, you know, Coke was sick for the past few years, so he really pulled back from Coke Industries and from the political work. Um, but... You know, I mean, it, it's it's. I think it's important to reflect on his life uh, and, and reflect on how extreme they have pulled this country. And you know, you're not going to see Charles or David Koch saying, "Oh, like you know, Mexicans are rapists" or anything like that. And they probably don't even think that. But they do come out of uh, a long line of of kind of, I would say, um, you know, neo Confederate. Or almost even even you know uh, white nationalist adjacent libertarianism, uh, and that that's something that I think is kind of becoming better explained now that people are seeing now that I mean you know Ron Paul had a racist newsletter in the sixties or seventies I think so you know there is a lot of uh, it's it's of course like this is only a subsection of libertarians but there is a, a historic trend of kind of white nationalist groups neo confederate groups and stuff kind of intersecting with libertarians. And then kind of like being in parallel with them, but also communicating, collaborating with them. And that's so this that's, would be so so Alex, just to draw this out for listeners, we're talking like the John Birch Society, uh, groups mm-hmm. like that operating in the mid twentieth century and their inheritors. Yeah, yeah. John Birch is, is a good example of a of a right wing group, a very, you know, anti immigrant group. Um, you know, had a lot of, I think, white nationalist members. Uh, that um, Charles Koch and Dar- Charles and David Koch's father was part of. I think he was a founding member of it, and then Charles joined and then left um, for a, a slightly different brand of um, discriminatory uh, conservative free market capitalism. Um, but you know, this is how they were raised by a very right wing uh, oil tycoon father who. Uh, worked for Adolf Hitler and for Joseph Stalin. For the Nazis, he set up, uh, you know, an oil refinery uh, and made a lot of money, which he, I think, must have brought back to America, put back into his business to expand it. Um, and then they actually, according to Jane Mayer's uh, book about the Cokes called Dark Money, um, amazing book, by the way. If anyone has not read it, please immediately read it. It is one of the most informative books for the, on the right wing that's ever been written. Um, Dark Money. But yeah, so she, she describes how, uh, you know, because um, I think, I don't, I don't want to be wrong about this, but I think their mother was fairly absent or maybe an alcoholic. Um, the father was working all the time. So they were essentially raised by a German nanny who went back to Germany in 1941 because she was so excited about the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. Um, so these are the people who shaped the Kochs. So, you know, a lot of the media likes to portray them as these moderate capitalists. And that's 
couldn't be farther from the truth. They are very extreme. Um, I think they hide a lot of their racism and bigotry, but it's there. But, you know, uh, the bigger point is that, you know, they have used their extreme wealth, which, you know, when Charles Koch took over the business, he he massively expanded it. And by all accounts, he is an absolute business genius. Uh, he's a very evil genius, but he actually is uh, an absolute genius. And, um, you know, the, just the, the level that this Koch conglomerate has gotten in terms of their sort of data analysis and their predicting market trends and all these things uh, is pretty impressive. Um, but of course, all that money is going right to the top to to Charles now because David's dead, and they're they're using that, putting a lot of that into uh, free market academic programs they've been funding since the seventies and eighties, like at George Mason University, that are essentially propaganda shops for the billionaire uh, funders of those those campus, you know, often campus groups or, or, or DC think tanks, um, and so they've been able to use this kind of network that comes that begins with you know heavily funded biased kind of free market economics education at the college and even now at some of the, at the high school level up to grad school um, a lot of that is a feeder program for some of the coke found coke funded and often coke founded think tanks like the cato institute or uh these kinds of things um or for the political network that they formed, which is Americans for Prosperity, probably a lot of your listeners have heard of them, which is the Koch's kind of biggest political nonprofit activism group and political spending group. And there's a huge web of them, um, many of which are, are tied to this uh, Foundation for Government Accountability, which we'll talk about in a second in my article about how um, the Kochs are, are funding the anti-poverty uh, program. Uh, sorry, funding, they're, uh, they are campaigning to kill anti-poverty programs like SNAP and Medicaid. Um, but essentially, you know, this kind of, their network trickles up into politicians, right? I mean, some of these people end up being politicians, others, other politicians, um, who may or may not be initially like-minded kind of, you know, get their money or get their support uh, in, in terms of outside ads and elections. And then they kind of become these Coke surrogates uh, in Washington and, and in the state houses. Um, so, yeah, I mean, David Coke was very much part of that whole process too. Um, and I think just something I would like to mention about uh, that I highlighted in my guardian op-ed about after his death was that, um, you know, David Coke is a great example of someone who has basically tricked the public into thinking, into thinking that he's a good guy. Um, he actually, he had cancer in the early nineties. He beat it. Um, and so he donates a lot of money to cancer research centers, especially at MIT where he went to college and I think maybe grad school. And so his name is plastered there. His name is also plastered all over New York city. He has, uh, the David Koch theater at Lincoln center, I believe. Uh, he funds the arts too. So the evidence is, oh, well, yeah, you know, he, he's, he's had some bad political views, but he's given millions and millions of dollars to arts and to cancer research. That's great. And what people need to realize and, and what people who research the Cokes and write about the Cokes for years realize, like Jay Mayer, like myself, is that, you know, this is essentially a whitewashing um, uh, effort by the Cokes. And, and, and it does not detract from the, what, the bad things they've done. Um, and, and so David Koch, uh, being the libertarian that he is, has is sort of, cannot empathize with any anyone unless he's actually personally experienced something. So he personally had cancer. He saw how bad it was. He said, oh, I'm going to put some money into trying to fight cancer. Um, but like he had to have that experience of actually having it in order to have some kind of understanding that other people might be suffering too. Um, and so he's never been poor. So he doesn't can't consider the idea that being poor actually is, is horrible. And it's really hard to get yourself out of poverty. You can't just have the will. Like it takes some help sometimes when you have billionaire oligarchs who essentially necessitate having a lot of poor people to pay for their enormous wealth. 
You know, one of the things to me that's most interesting in thinking about David Koch and, and his death, yes, as you said, I mean, his death in and of itself doesn't necessarily change anything. His brother's still around. The Koch networks and those who will inherit it from, the, from, from, from Charles will still be around doing what they do. But it does give us an opportunity to pull back and ask a, a broad question, and I think you gave a very good sweep of the overall legacy and, and you know the macro level view. But I want to ask you, how does the last three years color the way that we view the, the previous 40 from the Kochs? And specifically what I mean is, of course, the rise of Trump and the rise of Trumpism, which is far right and in many ways dovetails with a lot of the Kochs' ideas, but is something that is not exactly uh, you know, their flavor and not exactly something they controlled. In 2015, when Trump was running, uh, when beginning his campaign, I had written about it and doing a little bit of investigation into the money behind Trump. And one of the big stories in the summer of 2015 was that the Koch networks, which are essentially the Republican Party, were freezing out Trump and the Trump campaign from their voter rolls, from their data analytics, from a lot of these other things, and that Trump had to kind of go a circuitous route to to get access to all of that. And here we are three years later, and this idea that the Kochs and Trumpism are totally at odds, I think doesn't really square with reality. So tell me how you read the intersection between Trumpism and Kochism? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good area of inquiry. Um, you know, uh, it's true that the, the Kochs didn't really want Trump to be president. I mean, Trump's a nationalist and they're, they're not at all. Um, they want all the free trade stuff. They want no regulations of any kind, uh, including tariffs on imports and things like that. So they, they, they're, they're mobilizing against the tariffs now. Um, but they have more in common with Trump than they 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 don't have in common with Trump. I mean, look look at the the only legislative achievement that that the last Congress did um, was to pass the giant tax cuts for wealthy people and for corporations. Um, that was a massive uh, victory for the Kochs. They put a lot of money into uh, PR for the bill when it was you know in in process. And then um, I actually did a couple stories about what happened right after. So, oh, and before, so the Koch, the, the Koch network, Americans for Prosperity, a lot of the donors, you know, they were donating to these legislators as they were deliberating over the tax bill. Finally, when it passed, um, the uh, several members of the Koch family uh, gave huge donations to um, Paul Ryan's various political committees, victory committees, and leadership packs, and things like that. I think it was around half a mil- half a million in total. It was it was Charles and his wife, and I'm not sure a couple other main people there. Um, and so it was it was it was just a thank you. It was like you, you know you 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 saved us so much money that we're going to just throw you, you know, a little little half a million dollars to to thank you for your work. Um, and Trump was all about the tax cuts because he is look he's a billionaire oligarch too. You know, he's not nearly as smart or powerful as the Kochs, but um, he is part of that class, and um, he doesn't want to pay taxes. And he, obviously he doesn't. He, he barely paid any for most of his business career, I believe, as the New York Times laid out uh, in a very long article the other year. Um, but, yeah, I, I think generally they're on the same page about most things. I just think that, you know, the Kochs are like, well, you know, let the immigrants in because, like, they they – we need them. We need low wage workers to fulfill these, some of these jobs. And, um, they don't want to be restricted in that way. Um, you know, Trump is a little more complicated because I think he's primarily driven by racism and bigotry, uh, even over money, I would say. But, um, obviously all he cares about is, is being rich and being white and powerful. Um, so I'm kind of rambling, but, uh, 
I think generally speaking, like they, they're kind of on the same page. Trump has taken over the GOP, but the uh, the Koch network didn't really pull back. Yes, they didn't actively campaign for Trump, but something that a lot of people don't don't realize is that they ran a lot of ads for the U.S. Senate races, and in those races, they were tying the Democrat to Hillary Clinton. I'm sorry, yeah, to Hillary Clinton, and they were badmouthing her and campaigning against her that way, without actually physically doing an ad for Donald Trump, they were still attacking his main opponent, his general election opponent. Uh, and they helped, obviously, elect uh, some more Republicans to the Senate. Um, so I, I don't think it's accurate to say they didn't support Trump um, at all. It, it was just a little bit more uh, tangential help to Trump than direct. Right. And also to a lot of the causes that Trump is championing, like uh, pipelines and criminalizing protest and going against environmental activists and things like that, oh, where yeah. the Cokes won't necessarily need to overtly say, go Trump, but in secret, it's go Trump. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they have loved this EPA. It's, it's been a blessing to them. I mean, the Coke, you know, Coke Industries originally, of course, was an oil business. Now it's expanded, but it still has massive um, oil refinery and oil transport operations. So uh, they're actually one of the biggest polluter companies in the world. Um, a lot of what they do also is, is chemical production. Um, they even have a lot of uh, environmental regulations um, from their Georgia Pacific subsidiary, which is a, a paper manufacturer. Um, they, they have countless violations they've had to pay fines for over the years for workplace uh, issues, labor issues, and for uh, pollution. Indeed. Uh, they're evil villains, for sure. Arch villains, one might say. Uh, unfortunately, the villain of time has gotten the best of us, so we'll have to leave it there. But before we go, I want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about Sludge, about some of your work, about your work in campaign finance, etc. Give us a little bit of insights into what it is that you do and why uh, Sludge is so important. Yeah, I'm um, happy to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been a money and politics reporter my entire career. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the term follow the money, which I think everyone kind of knows as a term now, really came out of the Watergate-Nixon scandal, which was, uh, you know, the smoking gun was the payments to these uh, these people who broke into the, the DNC. Um, so, you know, that that's, that's, I mean, obviously, like, following the money can lead to enormous historical events, like, like the removal, you know, the resignation or the impeachment of a president. Um, but it, it kind of, you know, pervades through every level and in every area of politics. It's really obviously what drives uh, most capitalists or all, I would say, all capitalists, democracies and plenty of other government systems, too, are dependent on it. So really, um, a lot of times, you know, uh, people are politicians and, and spokespeople and industries are going to say what they say. Right. You never know if they're going to be telling you the truth. But money doesn't lie. I mean, if you can find the money trail. Those are hard, cold facts that you can use in your reporting. And that's why I love to look at documents, because a lot of what I do is looking at campaign finance documents, uh, financial disclosure documents of members of Congress, lobbying forms and registrations, um, a lot of other stuff, uh, you know, tax forms, 990 tax form for the nonprofit groups. Um, so all this stuff is, is, is just working with, with data, with numbers, and, and finding the patterns and finding the stories. And it's, the more you do it, the easier it is to find the stories. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really all about the money, and that's why I do it. I think it's, it's kind of the, the best way to hopefully have uh, an impact um, as far as my abilities go. So I really appreciate doing it. And um, yeah, Sludge is a new website we launched in mid-2018. We're a very small team of investigative reporters who report on money and politics. Um, we're actually fundraising right now. 
uh, for a project that is going to expose all 359 members of the DNC. Uh, we have some intel as to who they are, and we're going to do a, a research project about who they might work for. Are they lobbyists? Are they corporate spokespeople? You know, are they lawyers who work for interests that are potentially against some of the mainstream democratic policies now, and certainly against policies like Medicare for All, which is becoming the mainstream policy, uh, hopefully, of the Democrats. Um, so that is to say, yeah, if you can if you can check out our work, you like it, you want to help us out, just go to our website, readsludge.com. There's pretty obvious uh, links to our fundraiser. And just to be a regular subscriber, if you'd like, you can get my, my newsletter called The Sludge Report. Uh, if you pay five bucks a month. So um, that is all to say, um, you know, there's a lot of other good stuff out there. Uh, but I think supporting independent media like Counterpunch, like Sludge, like some of the other outlets out there that are smaller, that depend on uh, you know, readers' uh, donations to, to keep going, I think it's pretty important. The New York Times is going to be fine, you know. So, so people should put their money into where it can really make a difference, which is small independent newsrooms. Alex Koch, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Listeners, go to readsludge.com, become a uh, subscriber to the newsletter, become a regular reader and supporter. It's a it's a very good website, very important work there. Alex Koch, senior investigative reporter and editor over at Sludge. You can also follow him on Twitter at Alex Koch and the website alexkoch.com. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Eric. It's great to talk listeners, to you. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.